Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them, Ephesians chapter 4, as we continue through our study in the book of Ephesians. And uh, in case you didn't see on the way in, we do have Lord's Supper Cups. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper today. And so if you did not receive one of these on the way in and you would like to participate, if you'll just raise your hand real quick. We've got deacons in the balcony and on the floor that are ready to uh, give you those if you didn't see those on the way in. Looks like everyone, uh, maybe not, There's, there's a few. Well, happy Father's Day. As a, as a father myself, uh, it, is, it is a privilege. It is a joy. I cannot describe the wonderful feeling it is to have two awesome kids that God has blessed me with. Uh, but I also know that today may hold uh, different feelings for some. Uh, as, a, as a boy who uh, had a father who left home when he was six years old, and, and I was raised by a single-parent mother and a, and a teenage sister in the 80s. That's why I'm the way I am today. Um, I know the pain it is to be, a, to be maybe a child who felt abandoned and uh, where you had to struggle through certain areas of life uh, without a father in the home, but I also know that there are also dads here whose sons have wandered away from the faith, and, and that is uh, painful today. And so um, as, as we do celebrate Father's Day, we, you know, we, we, uh, we celebrate our Heavenly Father. We celebrate a father who loves us. And as we get into scripture today, verse six in particular, we'll say one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And as we gather today, as the body of believers, we gather today to celebrate uh, our heavenly father who is uh, Lord of all and over all and through all. And so as we look at this, the verses from last week, picking up verse uh, one, let me go ahead and read one and two again, get us caught up, and then today we will look at uh, three and following. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. As Paul uh, makes a shift from Chapters 1, 2, and 3, where he gives the doctrine of who we are in Christ. Now, chapter 4 is a therefore, here's the duty, because we are in Christ. So if the things that are said about you are true in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, then your life should look like this. There should be a response of worship in your life. And it is a matter of walking in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called. What does it look like? Well, he says, I urge you, I implore you. This is a present tense. I continually beseech you, ask you to walk, to take step by step, to live a life in a manner worthy. And, and as we talked about the word worthy, we, we saw that it was a weight, that there's a weight in the balance. And I said, let me take the performance Christianity weight off of you for just a second, that there is nothing you can do to be worthy. And that is why you are imputed with his righteousness, because it is Christ alone that allows you to be even, even considered part of the family of God. And so this is, this is the joy that we have, that we have been called. We have had the effectual calling of our salvation. And because we have been individually called into salvation, then we are to be called as a body of believers. So you individually have been called and saved into a corporate calling. And so now we, we continue in this thought. So as we continue in the thought, let me go to the Lord in prayer and then ask him to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your son, Jesus Christ, that has paid the ultimate price for our sins, that we have been imputed with a righteousness that is not our own. There is nothing good in us. We are hopeless and we are helpless without you. You're a good father. We thank you so much for the love that you loved us so much that you gave your son and that you send your spirit to help us, that you hold us and that we experience a union with you that is, that is eternal. 
So as we get in your word today, speak to us, mold us, and shape us, and allow us to have an eagerness to maintain the unity that you've given us. In Christ's name, amen. We walk worthy of our calling by being a community of called people who demonstrate humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. And so last week, we walk worthy when we walk in unity. So with that in mind, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Let's stop right there. One main thing I want to talk about today is the church is charged to maintain unity in Christ. Paul gives the church a charge. He writes to the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding area, and he says, look, I'm going to urge you to maintain the unity that you've been given. So eager to. Spare no effort in diligent activity. I'm going to encourage you to spare no effort in keeping the unity that you actually have. And so to maintain the unity, as John Stott puts it, is to maintain the church's unity. It must mean a visible unity, to maintain the visibility of that unity. Because if we have a unity in the spirit, that's not seen, but the visible aspect of the church being unified is seen by those in and around us. So this means that as believers, we maintain a visible depiction of the unity that we have with other believers between churches, between church members, all displaying a life worthy of the calling by walking in humility and gentleness, and patience, and bearing or tolerance with one another in love. This is the unity of the Spirit. The unity we have is a unity that is produced by the Holy Spirit. It is in Christ, through His Spirit, that we have a unity that is beyond anything that we can explain as a body of of believers. So our actions do not create unity, They maintain the visible evidence of unity. This is what Paul is getting at, that we are to maintain the visible evidence of what our actual reality is, that we are united. We are in Christ. So that means that when it comes to church, and as Paul writes to not just one gathered body of believers, but to several churches in the area, he writes to them and he says, listen, be eager to maintain this. And so there's no room for gossip. There's, there's absolutely no room for slander. There's no room for the church to have unforgiving hearts. There's no room for you to have bitterness and rage towards one another. But be eager to maintain a unity that, that you actually have in the Spirit. And so how do you do that? Well, you do that through humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance, and bearing with one another in love. This is actually showing us that Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 7, 17 is actually answered here, that there is a unity of the Spirit, that, which is what exactly Jesus prayed for when he prayed to the Father, that there would be unity. So in John 17, 9 through 11, and 20 through 23, it says this, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but 
they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. This is Christ praying on behalf of those who would believe, that is us, that those who would believe by their word, that they would be one, that they would be unified with a, a unity that is beyond our understanding because we are in Christ and Christ is in the, in the Father and now we are all in unity together. So this prayer is a prayer for unity. And that unity that we maintain, we have an eagerness to maintain visibly, is a witness to the world around us. So our witness is most validated by our unity. And how do you maintain unity? Again, we display humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. Now, what is not a great witness? Is it, is it when a church is ununified? When you see a church that's disunified, when you see a church that is full of gossip, when you see a church that's full of slander, you see a church that is uh, splitting over certain issues, you see a church that's arguing about all kinds of things, and the outside world looks in at that church, and what do they say? Oh, man, I want to be a part of that. No. They say, what kind of witness is that? What do they even believe? And so with this unity that we have, we are charged to maintain a visible presence of the unity we have. So how do you maintain it? Well, you display humility. Well, how do you, how do you display humility? I mean, really, how does that, how does that work out in your life? Well, it, it's through repentance, genuine repentance. And so what, is, what do you need to repent of in order to display humility? You need to repent of self-centeredness. Wow. I'll be the first to tell you, I can be very self-centered. Anybody with me? I can make things all about me a lot of the times, and I can disregard other people's feelings, and I can disregard other people's preferences and other people's thoughts, and I can be like, well, I, what I know is best. Oh, I need to repent of that attitude because I will never display humility in the body of Christ if I am not repentant of self-centeredness. Well, how do you display gentleness? Well, through Repentance. It's by repenting of harsh and uncaring attitudes and actions. Oh, there are times when I am harsh. There are times when I am uncaring. There are times when my actions do not display gentleness towards others. I should be repentant of that. How do I display patience? Well, I, I need to repent. I need to repent of having a short fuse. I need to repent of bitterness and anger and resentment? How do you display a tolerance in love? By repenting. By repenting of indifference. By repenting of disgust and avoidance. Really, it all boils down to a life of repentance. How can you maintain unity if you're not repentant? 
How can you maintain any of these attributes of Christ if you're not someone who is continually laying yourself before Christ and saying, this is in me and this is not from you? So repentance is more than religious regret. In fact, J.C. Ryle says this in his book on repentance. Religious feelings are worse than worthless if they are not accompanied by practice. Mere emotional excitement without completely breaking off from sin is not the repentance that God approves. So as we talk about unity today, as we talk about the unity we have with God through the Spirit, we talk about maintaining it by being a people who are repentant. So what is repentance? Well, it begins with the acknowledgement of sin. Everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. Am I right? And as I mentioned these these things, self-centeredness, harsh, uncaring attitudes, short fuses, anger, bitterness, disgust, resentment, avoidance, these may not be things that we commonly repent of. They're things that we often accept because if we can get other people to join us in our same feelings, then it, it validates what we think. So I need to acknowledge the fact that there are attitudes in my life that need to be repented of. Well, if I acknowledge that there is a sin in my life, then I need to be able to confess that sin. Those who, are, who confess their sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And so if I'm going to acknowledge it, then I need to confess it. And a lot of times that's where we stop with repentance. I, I felt bad. I knew that was a sin. I, I, I confessed it. I'm just going to move on. That's not the end of repentance. That the next one requires a breaking away from that sin. So not only do I acknowledge that there's sin in my life or an attitude of sin in my life, not only do I confess that in prayer to the Lord, but now I do everything I can to break away from it and turn from it. I don't want anything to do with that attitude anymore. And that produces in me a fruit, a fruit of hatred towards that sin. Do you hate sin? I mean, do you hate it? I think I told you before, I sat in a conference one time and a, and a pastor said, you know, anybody in here struggling with a sin? And we all, you know, okay, I better raise my hand because that's all of us. And he said, I'll tell you why you're struggling with that sin because you still love it. There's part of you that keeps going back to it because you think it strengthens you, validates you, and then you're left with it and it, it, it's disgusting. A hatred towards sin. And a repentant people who acknowledge their sin, confess their sin, break away from their sin, and hate sin, there are people who are eager to maintain a unity in the body of Christ. They're eager to maintain that unity and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which they've been called. So as we look around, we look at churches, and we look at the churches in our area, and we look at churches that we know, why is it that they seem so disunified? Why, why is there so much I don't know, for lack of a better term, like a competition going on. Well, it's because there's sin. The presence of sin and selfishness keeps us from realizing the invisible unity that we actually possess. So we should be eager to maintain it through repentance. Being humble, gentle, patient, and bearing with one another in love. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The foundation for our unity is not found in ourselves. It's found in God. It's actually found in the unity of the Trinity. 
Before all things were ever created, there was a unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. It was a, a unity that was there, and they are still in unity. And then John's, and John's record of Jesus' high priestly prayer, picking up where we left off, verse 23, I and them, and you and me, they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus was there before the foundation of the world. And I want them to experience the unity that we have. I and me, you and them. So our unity comes from the Trinity. Now, when's the last time you really thought about the Trinity? You're just caught up in a I thought you're like, man, let me just dwell upon the Trinity and let me just think about that. You know, maybe you're like, let me think of an illustration and no illustration is, is really good enough. So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? It means that there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stated differently, God is one in essence and three in person, right? This is something we can all kind of get, get around. Well, the reason this is a doctrine is because of the ecumenical council that gathered together, the Council of Nicaea. It took place in 325 AD uh, by Emperor Constantine. He decided, you know what, we need to all get together. And so we're going to get a whole group of church bishops together and leaders. And we're going to define the nature of God for all of Christianity to eliminate any confusion. Well, the Council of Nicaea overwhelmingly affirmed the deity and the eternality of Jesus Christ and define the relationship between the Father and the Son as one substance. So you can look through your Bible, all through there looking for the word Trinity, but you may, may not find it. But all of Scripture points us to the fact that there is a truth that Jesus is God. God in the flesh. The doctrine of the Trinity does not divide God into three parts. The Bible is clear that all three persons are each 100% God. So, let's look at some of these verses. John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So you have Jesus was God. Mark 1, 10 and 11. And he came up out of the water. Jesus was being baptized. Immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. So here you see all three members. You see the Father. You, you hear the Father. You see the Son, and you see the Spirit descending upon him. This is why, even as today, you saw the witness of baptizing. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is reason behind this, that we are acknowledging that there is a God in three persons. Philippians 2, 6 through 7, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself. Colossians 2, 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. There's a unity of the body. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. There is a deeper union because our union is founded in the union of the Trinity. Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites. 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. We gather today as a people who are unified in the belief that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He is the second member of the Trinity. This is what all scriptures pointing to. John Owen would say this, without union, there can be no communion. I have union with Christ, and on that basis, I can commune with him. It is because of my union with the Father that I can have communion with him. This union is fixed and unchangeable. And the love that is in the triune God for his people does not change. My experience in communion does vary with highs and lows. However, at no point can a believer have communion with one of the person's to the exclusion of the others. This is important. You cannot pick and choose who you have communion with inside of the triune God. So this means that there is a unity in Christ. For there to be a unity in Christ, we must be in union with Christ, and our union in Christ brings us into a communion with God the Father. John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There is a union that we have in Christ, unity in Christ. So what does this mean? This means that we can have friendships. We can have groups that we're a part of. You know how the, the people who drive Jeeps have that little Jeep wave that they do to each other? They're in some kind of little cool community that I'll never be a part of. Um, you've got people who are runners, and they'll, they'll be running, and they'll see another person running, and you kind of just nod in misery at each other, you know, like, we're doing this. I don't know who talked us into it, but we're doing it. You've got fraternities, you've got sororities, you've got uh, baseball clubs, you've got sports clubs, you've got all kinds of things you can pour your life into. You've got people who are at the ballpark even today that they're just, that's my community. But there will never be a union like the one that the body has because it is eternal union. Your union, your unity in Christ is founded in a unity that was there from the very foundation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Just as a side note, as, as we will get further along, we will talk about marriage, but, you know, Scripture tells us not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever in marriage. And the reason is, is because you, 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 can be, you can be close, and you can be intimate, but if you're not in union with Christ together, you will always be missing a, a, an important piece of that union. This week, I was... Uh, I was at the gas station, and I was pumping gas, and this 20-something-year-old lady, um, she comes up to me, she drives up, she gets out of her car, and she, she goes to hand me a pamphlet, and uh, she looks scared to death to, to talk to me. I don't know why, but she is just petrified, and she's shaking, and she hands out the paper, and she said, hi, we're in the area, and we're handing out literature to read, and I said, okay, great, who are you with? We're with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said, okay, well, full disclosure, I'm a Baptist pastor, so I'm not real sure your literature is going to do much good. 
To which she just turned away and walked. Like she didn't even say anything after that. Just complete fear, walked away. And I was like, okay, that was quick. I am still pumping gas. Like less than a minute goes by and an older gentleman pulls up with his shirt and tie. And I'm like, oh, they've sent in reinforcements. Here we go. And so he comes up and he says, sir, we're in the, we're in the area handing out literature. And I go, really? Who are you with? <laughs> we're with the Jehovah's Witnesses. And I said, sir, I, I need to stop you right there. I need to let you know that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is only one way of salvation that is through him and him alone. And he said, well, I believe that too. I said, yeah, but I believe he's also the second member of the Trinity. And he said, well, I don't believe that. And he turned around and got in his car and drove off. And I was like, well, we tried. We tried to, <laughs> we tried to have a conversation. Who are, you, who are we in union with? We're in union with those who are in union with the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We see the unity even in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So right there we see God the Father raising Jesus from the dead. John chapter 2, 19 through 21. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So right here, Jesus declares, I will raise my body. Romans 8, 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see the spirit raising Jesus from the dead. There is one God. We see seven doctrinal truths, indicating a completion that unite believers in one body of Christ. So here we go. We have, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Real quick, one body, one universal church made up of believers of all saints who are in Christ from all ages, all nations, and all tribes. One body expressed in many, many locations. Even as I've said, many churches in Ephesus at this point that are going to get this letter. Listen, there is one body. Comparing the church to a body, as James Montgomery Boyce says, is particularly appropriate in this passage. However, for a body is something that works together even though it is composed of many diverse parts. Moreover, its unity is organic. It is, it is achieved not by joining a number of diverse parts or pieces in a way that you would a machine, but by growth. The church is not a diesel engine or a watch or an airplane. It's a body. It grows by the multiplication of cells. There is one body, it is alive and it is active. It is the body of Christ, made up of all generations from, from Christ till now. It is, it is every tribe and every language and every tongue, and they are united by one spirit, one Holy Spirit. The same spirit has called, enlightened, convicted, converted, and filled all believers. As we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, 
and all were made to drink of one spirit. First Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? One spirit, one hope. We are formerly those who had no hope, but now we have a heavenly blessing and a full assurance of what is coming. One hope means that there is the same ultimate glorious reality for all of the church, whether Jew or Gentile. We have one hope. And as Paul would say to 1 Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. We have one hope. We have one Lord. All true believers confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Romans 10, 9. And if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As, as Augustine was quoted, Jesus Christ will be Lord of all or he will not be Lord at all. The question we have to ask is, is Jesus completely Lord of my life? This word Lord, kuros, describes one who is sovereign, one who is uncontested, who has absolute authority, one who is absolute ownership. It's the one in charge. It's used over 6,000 times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, most of which is translated Yahweh or Jehovah. There is one Lord. Is he Lord of your life today? Is he the sole possessor and owner of your life? Has he purchased you and redeemed you and bought you back from death and sin and slavery with his precious blood? If so, then you hold to one faith. The faith is the instrument by which you receive salvation and the doctrine which we preach unto salvation. We hold that we have one faith. We hold to the same essential doctrines of salvation and also we have the same personal belief in Jesus Christ that there is no salvation apart from him. That's why Jude 3 says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. One faith, we contend for the faith. Today it gets attacked in all different types of ways, by all different types of beliefs and varied doctrines that are shifting and changing by culture, but we hold to one faith, one baptism. Paul's not really concerned here with modes of baptism because you can go to different churches and find all different kinds of views on that, but he's talking about the baptism that is our identification with Christ as referred to in Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Buried with him in baptism, risen with him in newness of life. That's an outward display of an inner reality. One God and Father. One. God has a family which is entered into by faith in Christ alone. God's children all belong to the same family, have the same Father, and are united in the same Lord. Church, you have a unity that is, that is founded in the unity of the triune God. Be eager to maintain it. As John 1, 10 through 14 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 